I was never treated like an apprentice. I was treated, you know, what they call you in the, in the, in the, in the kitchen is a taiji, yeah? Which basically means prince, right? So it means you, can, you basically don't have to do anything you don't want to. Andrew and I are part of a team researching and telling the history of East and Southeast Asian families in Britain and the emergence of British Chinese cuisine since the 1960s. How did it come to exist? What does British or Chinese cuisine mean? And how does one affect the other? What are the individual stories that bring this history to life? So we're starting closer to home. Over three special episodes of Exo Soused, we'll be exploring three generations of Andrew's family. All food entrepreneurs. We'll be looking at the family drama, the sibling rivalry, generational conflict, but also the love and loyalty within the Wong family clan. Here is part two, covering the late 80s, 90s and early 2000s. Okay, so, Andrew, tell me a bit, I mean, lay the, lay the scene for us. Like, who were you in the 1990s? What kind of teenager were you? Give me a sense. What, were, what kind of music were you listening to? What kind of teenager was I? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, tell me, tell me your LP or your, your CD collection. What, what did that look like? I, th- I think, you know, I think I was, I was growing up in, a, in, a, in an environment where everyone wanted to be alternative. Oh, so yeah. I, had to, I had to suppress my love of the Backstreet Boys um, <laughs> and pretended I liked to listen to really, really angry music, you know? And what, alternative hip-hop? music. Not even hip-hop. Mm. I remember it was like, like grungy stuff. And, well, there was no you know, ones where... like Nirvana? Like no, no, it was further than that. It was like placebo and... Wow. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you, placebo. You kinda, you kinda listen, nice. And, and what were the other ones? Um, you tell me. Uh, the presidents of the United States of America. I mean, my friends were really into that. I was, and I, obviously I hated it, but I just kind of like went along with it. I was just like, okay. It, cool people aren't allowed to listen to, to pop music, which is quite ironic because they call it pop music because it's popular music. Um, but it was very <laughs> uncool in a... In a, in a private school in, in in central London to be moving with the trends, you know. Everyone had to do something different. You had to, you had to prove it. So you had to prove your intellect by being different. And only in later life did I realise, you know, I was just being a plonker. Um, liking popular things is not a bad thing at all. And actually, more importantly, liking things that you like and understanding that you like them is actually a, a very important skill to have, um, no matter how people may judge you for it. So you were a Backstreet Boy private fan. <laughs> it's a private closet <laughs> and, fan, yeah. I, think. <laughs> I, I mean, no, I, was, I was okay at and, school, I remember. I was okay, okay. at school. Um, I was, I, for some reason, I really shunned away from learning languages. Um, I don't know whether it was like the principle of it, or I thought that I would never have to need another language, um, because we were we were forced to study... And kind of Latin, German, French, um, from a, from eleven onwards, and and I wasn't very good at it, and then I just kind of used it as an excuse to basically not try to um, learn it, and I regret that even now. Even my Chinese is nowhere near as good as it should be, um, because I kind of really shunned away from it. I remember once we went to my sister and I went to Saturday school to learn Chinese. Mm. And from a very early age, I started bunking Saturday school. Um, 
because going back home to listen to Backstreet Boys. Well, not even that. The, I remember on the download because <laughs> I remember that um, in in Chinese school, if you don't pass, you have to stay in the same class, right? Mm. I got to the stage where I was like eight or nine years older than everyone else, to the point they had to tell me to sit in the back of the class because I was blocking everyone else's view. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, you know, like you know, I was all right at school, and I was like, well. I'm all right at school. Why am I so bad at this? Let's just leave it. And then, you know, once you start leaving something, you don't put any effort into it. You get worse and worse and worse. And, and that's one thing I really regret, actually, um, in, in adult life, really not participating more in, in language, especially Chinese and French, because I, I tried to relearn French um, as an adult. And it's actually not that difficult as, an, as a language um, compared to other languages like German or, or Russian or, or even Chinese. Um, um, and right. then... Well, let's 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 think about like you at home, right? So, okay, not so great at the old uh, staying in Chinese school on a Saturday. So, I mean, what was the family dynamic like? Um, obviously, you were or were you speaking English or Cantonese at home? How was um and and what happened at, at the restaurant? Were you there at the restaurant most of the time, or were you at home avoiding restaurant shifts? If you were forced to do those, yeah. So you have to understand. I grew up in a restaurant, uh, basically, and you know, there's a lot of people in in my generation who you know they say, "Oh, my family, you know, had restaurants or they had takeaways." No, actually, my 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 parents didn't have a takeaway. I mean, they had one before, but my childhood was not really a takeaway. It was a restaurant, and my my father was very very entrepreneurial. He wasn't. He didn't want to have like. Um, you know, a Chinese takeaway, inverted commas, as in um, kind of one which was very much steeped in um, what everyone else was doing in the UK. He was always trying to look for new ideas, um, trying to find ways to raise the profile of of Chinese restaurants. Um, And I remember he was almost, I remember looking back at it now, almost verging on being kind of a snob, against our community. It's like, it was kind of like, oh, look at all these restaurants, you know, they're not doing it the way it should be done. You know, we should be doing it this way or that way. Um, they're not entrepreneurial enough. They're not looking at the bigger picture. You know, they're looking at it from a Chinese takeaway perspective. And that was always his, his way of thinking. Um, and I remember at one point in time, he was obsessed um, with, with kind of um, finding ways to create kind of Chinese concepts that could be uh, rolled out. Um, mm-hmm. And he really wanted to, I remember at one point, open a McDonald's. Um, and then McDonald's got back to him and said, well, yeah, you can, but you need to go and enroll for McDonald's University. And my dad wasn't very good at school, I don't think. And the thought of him at, at 50, 45, going back to school, he was like, sod that for a joke. <laughs> um, and so he, 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 want, he tried to um, open a... Um, a concept of kind of noodle noodle bars. Mm. It was just after Wagamama had opened, um, but you know, reflecting back on my childhood, that was always kind of the the environment at home. It was this idea that we have a culture that we need to push forward, and and my grandparents used to always always moan um, at us for not speaking enough Chinese and not understanding enough Chinese culture. So why did they not? Why did we not ring them up at Mid Autumn Festival? Why did we not ring them up um, at the Festival of the Dead? Why did we not ring them up um, at you know 
Chinese New Year beforehand and, and greet them and, and go up to see them more often during because they kept them I remember they always always used to say, you know, China is you know, in in, in the late eighties, right? It was it was like China is an emerging economy. It will be the world's superpower uh, later on in life. Um later on in your life, they used to say to us as me and my sister and my cousin. And I was at the time you're like, Yeah, yeah, whatever. Like you you've been to China a few times, it was like basically, you know, roaming around a village, you know. It's like, yeah, whatever, superpower, schmooper power. Um, and lo and behold, 2023, they, they kind of, you know, they were basically Mystic Meg. Um, and they got, it, they got it spot on. Yeah, um, absolutely, my, they did. And my grandfather, I remember, in the, uh, in the, I was born in 82. So from the age of six or seven, he was always banging on about China is going to be the next superpower, Andrew. Make sure, make sure, make sure you hold on to the language, you hold on to the culture, and um, you know your 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 prospective career will be so defined by your relationship with being Chinese and your relationship with China um, and Chinese culture. So that was invite. And actually, I, I when I compare myself to a lot of um, uh, peers in in you know British born Chinese, I think that that was slightly unique on my part. You know, there are always like some families who, who, who again grew up in, you know, other market stores or, or, or Chinese takeaways who they valued education. So it was always like, you know, go do your homework, go and get straight A's, go to Harvard, go to Oxford, go to Cambridge. But it was never at the same time the parents trying to be um, entrepreneurial within the framework of British society or American society. Does that make sense? It was like we're gonna be we're gonna run a takeaway, but we're gonna run a takeaway as like a as a secluded, isolated microcosm of a business which doesn't really embrace um local culture. But my parents are always very much about we have to integrate local culture in order to, you know, make this a bigger picture thing. So then did you find that your dad was he always sort of did he share these kinds of um, ideals with his family? Was it just his wife, your mother, that he talked about, talked to about these things? Or did you as a family kind of get integrated into his ideas, his visions? Did you feed into it? Or was it, you know, because I can imagine some traditional families, including my own, you know, it was the parents that decided these things and the kids were kind of silent, but still partners in terms of adding labour. <laughs> you were the silent labour, labourers, uh, but, or was it more of a family decision about franchise or not restaurant or not you know these kinds of things yeah but this is in my, my my parents never wanted me to work in a restaurant um, yeah but what but the ideas that your dad had around you know could it have been a mcdonald's could he have done this was were they discussions around a kitchen table no, no, around no, no, that no, no. no. He, he was you know he's the leader of the family he was the leader of the family mm. and what he said went full stop mm-hmm. um there was there so, was no discussions about it. And only in later life when I start, you know, he passed away now for, for nearly 20 years, mm-hmm. where I talk to members of the family about what he got up to for in, his, in his 20s and his 30s, do I realise how entrepreneurial he actually was and how forward-thinking he was as a, as a first-generation migrant um, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And this stuff, like, growing up, all I ever saw was, you know, he was always trying to get rich quick. Um, it was kind of that mentality, and it was, it was always Andrew, you know, do well at school, do this, do this, do this, you know, 
tried to go to a good university and also when, whenever we were working in a restaurant it was never about you must go and work in hospitality it was pretty much don't work in hospitality but try to learn these skills that hospitality can teach you to go into other industries I remember what did it feel like for you then um, looking in on okay maybe it wasn't as articulated right he was saying you know I want to um, push a Chinese sort of culture I want I want to like you know integrate it I want to I want it to be like a, um, a proper enterprise this restaurant that I'm like building at the kitchen side of things were you curious did you notice there was something very different about the way that your dad may have run his restaurant compared to others um, or did it you know was it not as visible to you at that time you know in the, in the 80s Chinese restaurants really didn't for the vast majority the menus didn't vary massively I'm not gonna lie my dad's like four best friends um, all had uh, restaurants Chinese restaurants um, in different parts of London and the UK and I remember their, their menus when you went when you when you went to those restaurants they were pretty much identical to each other and they used to sit around the table and discuss a new dish and all put it onto their menus at the same time um, but but food with, with Chinese restaurants within that market um, at the time, what differentiated one Chinese restaurant from another really wasn't about the food. It was more about the decor, the service, the ambience, and the clientele that you were you were able to to generate. Um, and I think that was what was quite unique to my dad in the sense that he was always trying to rub shoulders with. Um, you know, with, with British high society, he was always trying to rub shoulders with MPs and rub shoulders with, you know, um, young professionals, you know, born and bred kind of old school British uh, professionals, um, which again is quite unique because actually my, my other members of family all over the world who had like Chinese restaurants or Chinese takeaways, their entire network was very much all Chinese, right? It was like you hang out with other Chinese people on a Sunday, you go to Chinatown um, you probably have hang around with a lot of friends who, who still don't have a like a really strong grasp of the language or, or local culture and I think my dad well, again it, it, it was looking back it was a bit arrogant of him but he, he, he really made an active effort to shun that side of um, his own culture um, and maybe that maybe in those situations at that time it was like get radical you or, or, or do nothing but that was his way of dealing with it. It was very much to try to push it away as far as possible and try to over-integrate into local British culture to compensate for that, I think. Wow. So front of house would have been pretty important as a stage, as a, as a place for him to build these connections and relationships and welcome people. It sounds like, you know, it, front of house was where it was at. And you were part of that team. Clearly. No, well, no, well, oh. I, I was forced to just fill in some gaps. But again, his, even with the restaurant, he didn't build the restaurant to work in it every day. He mm. built that restaurant to be a business, I remember. And mm. his intentions for service obviously are very different to the actual service. Right? Okay. So, so his intentions for the service were, you know, I remember you, he would take us out to the Ritz or he would take us to Marcus Waring's restaurant or you're talking to Marco Pierre White's restaurant. As a kid, I had no idea who these people were, by the way. Um, <laughs> and I remember the food being quite delicious. 
Um, and, and that's where he set his bar, I remember. You know, he looked at these restaurants and he was like, this is what um, service needs to be like in, in our restaurant. Um, but obviously everyone knows actually to, 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 we're thinking of something and turning it into reality are two very different things. Um, but there were things that he always actively was, was looking out for and he was trying to integrate them into this very kind of local Chinese restaurant. And how about your mother? How involved was she in, in also thinking about these um, issues, these stands that your dad was keen to, keen to meet, the, the dreams he had? What, what kinds of things did they share and what kinds of things did they maybe diverge on? My mum is very, very functional, like very, very pragmatic. You know, my mum came to England um, as a trained nurse from Hong Kong. Um, met my dad in a, in a tiny place in the Midlands, um, got married and then came to London and started being a, a housing officer, I remember, in, in Brixton. So growing up, if we weren't sitting in a restaurant, we were sitting in her office after school. Um, and I remember the stories she, she used to tell me because she was basically responsible for giving out social housing to people in Brixton. And she was saying she used to have to stand behind this bulletproof glass of people throwing chairs at her and stuff like that um, if she ever refused them social housing. Um, and she only got into the restaurant business because um, she didn't want to she didn't want to do what she was doing. I don't think that going into hospitality was her, her preference and her first choice. Um, but she did it, I think, for my dad more than anything. Um, and then my mum is, is a workhorse. You know, if, if ever there's a, there's a, a correlation of, of work versus success, regardless of kind of natural passion or, 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 or natural acumen towards something, like my mum epitomizes that. She, she doesn't enjoy hospitality at all. Um, but she's willing to work for anything um, in order to make it successful. And my mum is super hardworking and she, in, in a way, my dad was very entrepreneurial, kind of stepped back very, very quickly from any kind of restaurant that he created. And he left my mum in there to actually do a lot of the, the hard work nearly all the time. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was very much my mother who did a lot of the donkey work, but my dad was the man with the ideas and always trying to try new things. Um, she she used to go mental at him all the time with some of the things that he would he would come up with, like you know, for instance. It, oh, you know, just like buying ridiculous like crockery for the restaurant. I remember one day I came back from school and he bought like a full size um, casino standard roulette and gambling table and start and set it up in the downstairs of the restaurant. And my mom was like. Why? Why would you do this? <laughs> well, and it obviously costs so much money as well. And like he would go, oh, I want to get into like photography. You know, I don't know if it was related to the restaurant or not. He would buy like this, like like twenty, thirty grand worth of worth of photography stuff. Wow! And he didn't even know how to take a photo. Um, <laughs> and my mum would be looking at him like, I'm working my ass off here, and you're you're spending thirty grand on on like a camera. Um, are you mad? Um, but, but I think that it was that dynamic which, which made them um, very successful in the sense that mm. they, they complemented one another quite well in that sense. So your mum moved from um, a role, a social care role, into your dad's kind of hospitality empire, you know, his, his business. And, I mean, it seems like she was 
in what you know your dad had the bigger vision your mum was the details oriented person right she was there the sort of the quotidian everyday kind of stuff um that had to happen was really your mum's purview so you know was she involved in the hiring of of chefs and and front of house staff was she like you know the kind of uh, trying to get your dad's vision to the more practical level of what happened what food was served how people were served you know what it felt like or looked like no my my mum was very much kind of let someone else put the infrastructure in and then I'll police it for you okay Um, that was kind of her role my dad was the one who came up with the menus hired the staff and he was a very very good people's person Um, so he was very good at building relationships with chefs uh, potential chefs Um, obviously um, my, my, my dad spoke both Mandarin and Cantonese uh, with my my mother only really speaks Cantonese, so when you're hiring mainland chefs, um, you know, she didn't necessarily have that language set. Um, but that aside, you know, the the restaurant industry really, and especially in, at that time, was was a a man's world, um, especially the Chinese restaurant industry. And when you're hiring chefs, they're not going to listen pretty much to uh, to mm-hmm. a, a you know a, a lady in her mid forties who ultimately doesn't know how to cook. Uh, whereas my dad still knew how to cook, um, even though he chose not to do it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was you know, very charismatic and very good with dealing with people, very good with dealing kind of cross-culturally at, at what, um, what a chef from mainland China really wanted to hear, wanted, wanted in general in life. Um, and he was very good at, at kind of... Um, having those people skills in order to keep the team happy and keeping the, the ship kind of sailing along. So talk me through then, okay, so what kind of menu, what, what was the kind of, okay, maybe he changed the menu quite often or, or maybe no, some no, parts no. of the menu changed. menu never changed in 20 years. So then what, <laughs> what was he looking for in terms of his, his, the culinary skills in his kitchen when he was looking out for new chefs and clearly going to the mainland and Hong Kong to, to get these chefs rather than going across to Chinatown and seeing, you know, doing the usual sort of poaching, as, you know, these kinds well, of things Well, he did do that as well. He did, he did that as well. But, you know, in the, in the late 80s, it's a little bit easier to find staff than it is now, to tell the truth. Mm. Um, but I do remember that he, he used to always get people to, um, to make hot and sour soup um, as a trial. Because that was his thing. Is like if you want to learn, that, if you want to be a chef, make me a good hot and sour soup, and it is actually very difficult. Um, and again, could he make a really amazing hot and sour soup? Probably not. But he knew what a really good one tasted like. Um, you know, his his mother, my grandmother, was from Sichuan, um, and and he understood um, flavor very very well. In all honesty, have you um, and and. Do you know how to make a good hot and sour soup? Um, we haven't had it on a menu for nearly a, a decade. I'd like to think I could make a, a semi-good one. Um, yeah, oh, it'll be all right. But it, it, it's 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 surprisingly difficult to say the truth. You know, again, just right. There's a lot of elements to 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 take into consideration that make a really good hot and sour soup. Um, and and not really just not just making one right, but make fifty of them all the same is actually um, the more difficult thing. You know, getting the balance between uh, hot, sour, spice, 
and um, mouthfeel all the same over 50 portions, that is actually quite difficult. Well, I mean, knowing you as I do, Andrew, I'm sure, I'm sure you would put all the work in <laughs> and make sure that hot and sour soup was fabulous each time it came out of the kitchen. And so, okay, so I guess now, you know, you're coming into your early adulthood, you're sort of, you know, in the kitchen, you know, in the restaurant business, but in a kind of casual way. And obviously you're thinking about a different career. And you've talked a lot about this in the press. You know, you were heading for something else. You know, you were doing chemistry, then you were doing anthropology. You know, you you just knew it wasn't going to be in the hospitality industry. So talk me through what happened your father passed away and then there was probably a period of time where um i guess your mother stepped in uh in a broader sense to kind of take over the the whole aspect of the of the of of his role or attempted to and how did you fit in then what was going on at that point um well i think you have to remember actually my mom my mom obviously was left with this predicament where, you know, she doesn't really like hospitality, but she has to stay with it because they're all running. You know, everyone who runs a business, a restaurant especially, knows that it's not something you can just stop. You know, once it's running, it just runs. Mm. Um, And at the same time, you know, my sister and I were still in our mid-twenties. I was in my early twenties. She was in her mid-twenties. And so she wanted to make sure that we were financially stable before... um, closing any of the restaurants. So she kept them running purely, I think, as a, as a source of income more than anything. Mm. It was basically our only source of income. Um, at where did I fit in? I just fitted in, I remember, in any way I could. And as, a, as an early 20s, someone in their early 20s who's still at university, there's very, very little you can actually do. But there is something to be said that for any restaurant, actually, continuity uh, actually speaks volumes um, when guests come to a restaurant you know whether or not your restaurant is good or bad um, guests like continuity they like to see the same faces all the time and pretty much during that entire period the only thing I could offer was um, guests a sense of continuity in the sense that I could be physically in the restaurant um, learning more than anything um, but you know over the years I'd learned I'd learned skills in in how to look after guests, how to chat to guests. Um, and so I did that a little bit, but then I kind of very quickly realised that I didn't think that that had longevity for myself, uh, which is why I wanted to go into the kitchen. Um, and so I started delving into the kitchen a little bit and I kind of looked at it and went, okay, this is quite, yeah, in a weird kind of way, this is quite fun. Um, but more to the point, it's like, well, I might be able to, I could maybe learn this and, and do something with it um, in, in, in later life. And that's when I kind of slowly thought that, you know what, um, we should look into the back of houses as a, as a prospective career. Um, and we had a chef, I remember at the time, who had, who had enrolled for a catering college. And I remember flicking through his notes at why he was at college. And I knew nothing about the stuff he was doing. I knew nothing about cooking, really. And it all seemed quite... But oh, this is this is quite interesting. It'd be cool to make this or make that, um, and that's when I thought, you know what? Let let's let's enrol and see what happens. And then beyond that, I just kind of took to each day as it came. 
Um, there was no grand plan really at the time, at that particular time. It was always just kind of, let's just see what happens. You know, at the end of the day, I had enrolled for law school and I'd got in and I'd paid my deposit. And I just got off, I remember I just got off the train at Temple and I was meant to walk up towards, I can't remember which uh, law school it was. And I remember I just got back on and went back to Victoria and said, I'm not going to do this. Um, and I enrolled for Catering College instead. It was just like that. It was just like, well, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna do that, then let's just do it and see what happens. And and I've never really had mass grand plans. Um, you know, my father passed away in two thousand and four, and now it's two thousand and twenty-two. Um, I've never really looked further than one or two years ahead. But um, for the most part, I, I I'm very kind of short term. It's like what what do we need to what do we need to set as goals in the immediate future? One, two, three. Okay, let's let's learn, let's let's try to um, fulfill these goals, and then let's make another set of goals, and then I share and I push the team to try and achieve these goals, and when they do, we push again. Um, I'm not really one of these people. Who go, you know what? In fifteen years time. What I really want is I want to have a an empire of fifty restaurants. I want to open a chain. Of the, I don't. I I'm, I'm I went into this as a as an industry that I never really wanted to get into to start with. Everything that we've ever achieved has just been um, a combination of hard work, um, luck, um, and just kind of natural serendipity and evolution mixed in. So I, I've always thought, you know what? If that's the way we've done it today, let's not. Let's not change it yet. Um, I think, I mean, you skated over this perhaps, but I'd like to focus in on it. Um, that switch between front of house and then going into the kitchen. I mean, you're, I, I wonder what the other chefs might have made of it. You know, the owner's son coming in and being a learner, but still being the owner's son, right? I mean, there's a, there's a, interesting kind of role reversal disconnect there and and of course I guess when you learn you're the apprentice right and so you're learning with these um very talented extraordinarily talented very very experienced chefs so you know there's a there's a sense that maybe you know it's 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 you you had to sort of wear a few hats in the kitchen never mind a kind of chef's trainee hat um and then eventually balancing that with sort of gaining qualifications getting getting out of the kitchen into the classroom and doing your catering um qualifications um how i mean it's it's an extraordinary thing um, well they're never going to treat you like an apprentice is that what you mean is that if that's what you mean i was what, never what, i was never i would never treat you like an apprentice i was treated you know what they call you in in the in the, in the kitchen the taiji yeah which basically means prince right so it means you can you basically don't have to do anything you don't want to. Um, so a lot of this is like you have to set yourself um, goals. I went into the kitchen and I had to set myself goals. If they said they wanted me to do X, Y, Z, I had to make sure I did X, Y, Z plus another set of X, Y, Z. Um, it was never about what their expectations were of me. It was always about what my expectations were of myself. Um, because the dynamic is a strange one. Because ultimately, what was happening at that end of the day? At the end of the day, who was handing them a paycheck? I had to hand them a paycheck at the end of the end of the month as well. Um, so, so it, it it was an odd dynamic, and I mixed into that that you know they were all kind of 
they worked with my dad for many, many years, so there was a sense of like loyalty. So I think to an extent, they probably felt sorry for me as well. Um, so they were willing to teach me. Um, but yeah, it, it, was, it was a strange dynamic. Um, but I think the important thing was is that I never ever um, looked at their treatment and gone, this is a normal relationship. It was always, this is a bit weird. Um, if I, I'm probably going to have to go and um, find, find a way to, 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 to fill in some gaps by myself somehow, um, either through education or through uh, working in other places or, or whatever it might be. Um, because I knew from a very early stage I probably wouldn't have been there. So then where did you practice? Because um, I guess you had to practice something, some things privately. And then there's catering college, and I'm sure there wasn't enough space for Chinese culinary skills, or perhaps there was, I'm just making an assumption, for you to practice there, or for you to practice the skills that were coming out of, you were coming out of catering college with, you know, and potentially probably quite heavily European focused culinary skills, right? technical skills. So where were you kind of trying to absorb everything and practicing by putting it into your body, that embodied skill that you, I know that you have. So how are you yeah. getting the hours in for that? Yeah, well, some of it is just at the end of the day, if you're, you're the boss, there's certain allowances you can make, right? So if you need to learn <laughs> how to cut mushrooms, you just go buy a shitload of mushrooms and you <laughs> cut them and you tell other people to eat them as star food. It, it, it's, you know... It's 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 one of those things, and uh, that's the one of the, you know, I have to put up with a lot of shit, and and actually, it, the, the the perks of of ultimately still being the employer yet the apprentice at the same time is you know I get to I get to buy these things in, and I remember after going to catering college there were certain things that we would make. It's like wow, no one in their workplace would be making some of this stuff anymore because it's so old school, like the real old school Escoffier kind of stuff. Like no restaurant would serve it, or no restaurant would make it like that anymore. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I did, and I was able to do that because it was kind of like, well, I'm paying for the uh, ingredients, so let's just have a mess around and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, also, at that time, we were very lucky in a sense, in the sense that the, the restaurant and Chinese restaurants in general, I think even to this day, are probably. Um, not particularly busy at lunchtime. I know it sounds a bit odd, because uh, obviously this is a whole dim sum thing, but actually, if you go to most Chinese restaurants, even if they serve dim sum or not during the week, um, they're not particularly busy. And my, my that restaurant, um, for the entire time that we ran it as Kim's, was always dead at lunchtime, I remember. So there was always time to, to do these little things. I remember the chefs would be like reading a newspaper, they're just like there'll be a bit of prep, and then they'll just be sitting there reading a newspaper for most of the morning. So I'll be left to do whatever I wanted to do. They'll be like, "Oh, yeah, oh, that's all right. Yeah, what are you doing? What are you making? Oh, that's all right." Um, so yeah, so it, it was about it was really about um, trying to find a sense of reality within myself, mm. um, and I think. Even when I was at college, I remember, you know, at the end of the day, you, you're at college and everyone's in full-time employment at this time. You know, some of them were very, very good chefs. They're all working for XYZ, some really famous restaurants, some Michelin-star restaurants. But you could tell that the way they thought was very much like a cook. It was like, we're going to learn these recipes. I'm going to 
recite the recipe and I'm going to recreate it when I go back to XYZ location to, to if someone ever asked me to make a holiday sauce or asked me to make a, you know, a bernoisette or whatever it might be. And from a very early age, once I got over the initial kind of, wow, I know nothing, um, I realised that most of it is just BS in the sense that they like to call things really fancy French names when actually they just mean very simple things. Um, like cut a carrot into the shape of a matchstick, um, cut a carrot into a cube, um, but they can't say that. They have to say something else just to confuse everyone. Um, once you get over that and you, you, you ground yourself in that basic foundation of language and communication, then it was like, well, actually, everything that I'm learning now, we is there... Is there a place or a time where this skill would be useful? And I think that is a very different mentality to have. Um, and, I, and I said, I was no, I was a terrible cook um, when, I, when I first went to college. Um, and everyone knew it. I mean, I, was, I didn't know anything. I, I literally knew nothing. Um, but I remember by the end, um, the, 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 the teacher, the lecturer was like, wow, you've really you really got yourself to a level where you could hold your own in the kitchen um, over the, the year or two years that I was there. And that was nice. It was, it was just, but I never, I never expected to be an amazing cook. I just wanted to be someone that, you know, we put you in a, a kitchen um, or, or I like to remember, if, I, if, if they put me in a, in a high-end kitchen, like a, a, a Gordon Ramsay's kitchen nightmare, you know, I wouldn't be the one getting screamed at. I'd be the one, you know what? I'm going to float. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get through service. I'm gonna be able to do things at a, a reasonable, reasonably high level. Um, and then, yeah, it was just about utilizing that knowledge, utilizing the knowledge of kind of kitchen organization, um, utilizing the knowledge I remember on kind of uh, the practicalities of running a kitchen, the hygiene standards of running a kitchen, which are all, I know it sounds very odd, but they're very kind of different. They're not particularly kind of. Um, not that much attention is, is really focused on them all the time or on, on, in, in the 1990s and early 2000s in, in a lot of Chinese restaurants at that time. It, like I remember that if you talk to the chefs who were working in my parents' restaurant, I remember they always looked at food hygiene as just like a, a pain in the backside. And they always looked at kind of um, health inspectors as, as people just trying to mess with their creativity as opposed to being a necessary requirement in the kitchen. And I think by going to colleges, it just became norm that, you know, we expect these standards. And, and that, those are the kind of things that I, I, I thought, you know, that we could definitely implement that into our system somehow. So looking then across, I mean, how long did this, this period last, do you think, of your training, your, your kind of quote-unquote apprenticeship, before that time when you felt okay this is the time this is the place where I'm going to do something different how long was it in that that period that middle period my father passed away in 2004 I didn't go to China until 2010 so then it was a period of eight years you know sort of six Six, years six years yeah and what were other people around you doing? Like, you know, your friends, your, your, the peers that you'd gone to college with. And like, how did you, were, was there external um, sense or there was an external pressure to kind of then 
maybe do something slightly different or evolve the restaurant from from you know any external pressures at all or what were you no what were you thinking there were there were no external pressures at all all my friends were kind of going off and and trying to find their careers you know what it's like mm. when you leave uni you're kind of like mm. oh i've got this piece of paper now what like, mm. and then you realize that actually you're about as employable as if you never got a piece of paper to start with that's and that's kind of the reality of it right and i was coming from a situation going well I'm kind of been dealt this card where actually, if I want to, I could have a play around and 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 try to invest some time and 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 passion into something and possibly make it work, or if not, I could um, just kind of let it carry on. Um, you know, I think I remember at this time the management was because my, my yeah my mum had kind of like let things slide a little bit in the sense that she really didn't really want to be part of it that much and so we kind of let other people run certain things for a while and so the general standard was dropping very very quickly and so it's like we can either just get rid of it or we can try and see if we can make something work and that was more the kind of point in time where I thought you know what I think we can do something to make it work because we, we we Natalie and I had started working in one other of our restaurants and we we turned it around in the sense that we turned it from um, a really, really, really uh, poor performing restaurant to one which was actually a business. Um, and so we thought, you know, if we can do this, we can we can definitely do this again. Um, but we need to arm ourselves with the right uh, tools in able to do it. And, and at that point, I was convinced that in order to do it, I needed to go um, and work in China for a while, um, which is why I decided to go. So the other restaurant. So how many restaurants did you have at this point? Or that, so, um, so he had he had two noodle bars and um, and this Chinese restaurant. And turning it around was almost like a, uh, a you know it proved something to both you and Natalie that there was something in it, right? There was there was a a way to do things differently um, that might be important to take back to Kim's I guess um, yeah you know what I think more to the point it was like you know what actually turning a restaurant around um, a lot of the time doesn't require rocket science um, and I'm not saying turn it into a massively successful restaurant right I'm talking about turning it into a acceptable restaurant you know you go to some restaurants and they're dreadful right and I'm not gonna lie I've been to many many dreadful restaurants in my life um, and to turn them around, actually, what they're missing a lot of the time is a little bit of guidance, number one, with regards to a menu. And then secondly, kind of basic skills in hospitality. Um, Natalie is possibly one of the best hospitalitarians that I've come across in the whole industry. Um, and actually, with regards to a menu, menus don't have to be massively complicated. They just need to be consistent and deliver a certain level of quality. You know, this is, this is um, we weren't aiming to get Michelin stars at this time. It was just like, let's make sure that we can earn enough money to pay the rent at the end of the month. Um, and it was because, you know, chefs were, you know, spent most of the time having cigarettes at the back, you know, or they were, they were it's, it's sodded off to the casino when they should be working, you know, or, or they were asleep downstairs. Like, instead of doing their prep. Now, these things are not rocket science. It's just you get these people to wake up, do the work properly, clean the kitchen properly, 
um, and make small adjustments here and there to improve the food. And before you know it, over a six month, 12 month, 18 month period, you will begin to see a difference um, for the better. And I, we saw that. It's interesting that, you know, these, these you know, what you're saying, these kind of quotidian decisions and, and processes and getting, peop- getting this kind of managerial um, stuff right. And then the slow build up towards thinking, I need to, I need to go to China. <laughs> So these two things kind of happened, I guess, simultaneously. You know, this kind of, okay, it's not rocket science. These are processes we just have to get right. Let's, let's clean this up. Let's do this right. Let's get this, let, let's get this show on the road properly. And then the build-up behind you and in your mind and in Natalie's mind was actually, maybe it does need a big overhaul. Maybe there's something to bring back to Kim's in particular. Maybe there's some big leap that needs to happen and that Andrew needs to now... Yeah, well, you know, do, Kim's, Kim's was the, the China thing. yeah, Kim's was the worst performing restaurant I remember at this point in time, uh, but it, it meant the most to myself anyway because it was a restaurant I grew up in, and so you know the other restaurants it was like oh great you know their noodle bars fantastic blah blah blah, but Kim's always had a very special po- a heart place in my heart purely because we grew up in there in the building, and all our family events had always taken place in that restaurant. So it was purely the idea that um, we wanted to have one go, I wanted to have one go at seeing if we could turn this magical space for me personally into a successful restaurant. Um, I would never have opened um, a restaurant if it wasn't on that site. And I can honestly say that I would have, I don't know, I, I don't know if I would have stayed in hospitality. I don't know if I would have gone out and, and worked for other people instead full time. But I would, we only opened A Wong because it was on that site. Um, full stop. Thank you for listening to part two of this special series of Exo Soused. Please join us for part three. Thanks. <laughs>